Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and our guest today is the head coach of the U.S. men's national soccer team, Greg Berhalter, who has been open about his plans and process with the team in general and how the Federation uses analytics specifically. At the Sounders Analytics Conference earlier this year, Greg was very transparent about how the men's national team uses data, including the ProVision platform that True Media produces in partnership with Stats Perform. And Greg's candidness there made me want to get him on the podcast, so here we are. During our conversation, Greg will talk about managing a national team during the COVID-19 pandemic, the information he wanted as a player, how data crept into his prep process as a player and a coach, how he and his staff use data in monitoring the player pool, preparing for games and during games, the differences in managing a club versus a national team from an analytics standpoint, what happens when data and the eye test conflict, keys to communicating data with players, how he watches a game, and his favorite story about his godfather, baseball Hall of Famer Carl Yastrzemski. Really. Then True Media's Albert Larcata will join me to react and wrap things up. Now, without further ado, here's the Expected Value Conversation with U.S. Men's National Team Head Coach Greg Berhalter. We're joined now on Expected Value by U.S. Men's National Team Head Coach Greg Berhalter. Greg, thanks for joining us on the show. Before we start talking analytics and such, how are you doing during this layoff, and and how have you handled it from a national team standpoint? You know, we're managing through it. I think, um, you know, it's controlling what we can control, right? Um, You know, we're still in contact with the players. We're still now that the leagues have started up again, able to watch games and scout games. We've been working on projects and, um, you know, just day by day, you know, realizing that our next time, next time we're going to be on the field is is most likely October. So Mm -hmm. there's still a good bit of time um, between now and then. So let's start by going back to your playing days from mid nineties through 2011 with the galaxy with us from 94 to 06, a couple world cups as a defender, then what sort of data or information did you look for getting ready for a game? Oh, that's a good one. So, you know, you have to remember data was very limited back then. Mm-hmm. And, and what I would look at is, you know, the touches that the, the forward had, the, the shots that he had with what foot was he shooting? I would look at, the amount of dribbles he had then i think that primarily i would go into the video and just watch a video of him and, and study mm-hmm. the player and see you know the tendencies of the player so i think that that was you know maybe maybe you go into the crosses and look at you know what what the the wingers were cro- how often mm-hmm. they crossed the ball and and where they crossed the ball so it was a combination of numbers you know especially looking at my direct opponent and then the video and when did data kind of, I'll say, beyond the basic box score stats start creeping into the prep process through your career uh, in Europe, MLS? When did, when did those other advanced data, we'll call it, start creeping in? It was, it was later. It was probably when, when I came back to MLS in 2009, um, you know, maybe starting to get there 2008 and seven when I was in Germany with, with 1860 at the end. You know, the interesting thing, when we when I first started out, you can imagine like we're looking at video, we're analyzing yeah. video from the TV feed of the highlights. Mm-hmm. That's what we're analyzing. <laughs> I mean, it, it was insane. That's what you're looking at. You know, so yeah. if you think about it, you're only looking at like positive things or really negative things. There's nothing neutral, you know, that you're right. able to analyze. And yeah. that was that was really um, 
you know, as a coach, you like to look at the whole game. You like to look at the structure. You look at, you know, and and this was just either positive events or negative events. That's all you're analyzing. So I thought that was it was funny. I mean, you you did get to learn from mistakes, right? But there was very little analysis, video analysis that started to come. You know, when I got back to Major League Soccer, match analysis was doing their program, and you know that tango and everything. And then mm-hmm. you started to look into. So after the game, post game, I look at how many touches did the forward have against us? You know, we wanted to always limit his touches. You know, you'd look into your passing percentage. You'd look into, um, you know, you can click on and see all your passes. So then it started to ramp up a little bit around 2009. So as you shifted to a coaching job in Sweden and then come back to MLS, how did you kind of figure out what data is there, how to incorporate that into the process? Because that was mostly a new thing. How did you figure all that out and manage it? We started doing some cool things. You know, I don't know how relevant it was, but we were trying stuff. You know, we're doing expected pass um, accuracy versus mm-hmm. actual, you know, and, and getting the, the total pass um, percentage of players all in MLS. We're doing contribution to winning. So taking all the events and, and grinding them into a number and see who contributes to winning the most. Um, so we were trying, we were trying to get as much data that we could and, and work with it. Um, and, and then, you know, and then working with starting to work with, uh, expected goals, starting to work with past networks, starting to work with the tendencies of opponent based on data, um, using data to come up with a a script of what we thought the opponent was going to do. And then matching that with your eye. So it all started right around them, 2011, 2012. I'd like to try to get a quick overview of how you and your staff at U.S. Soccer use data analytics. So from kind of a high-level public perspective, the two main things you do, and I know there's more than this, but kind of the main things, you're managing a player pool, and then there's kind of an on-field strategy portion to that. Uh, Let's start with the player pool. How do you use data to monitor the player pool, to track the players you you know are on the team, might be on the team, et cetera? How do you use, what's the role of data in that? What we have is after every game the player the, the player competes in, we have that loaded into a, a file and and then um, it, it's accessible to all the coaches. And it you know it pulls up really nicely on into a, a sports code editing window, and mm-hmm. all the data is overlaid already. So from an editing standpoint, it's really easy to to review a game if you wanted to just look at events. From there, we have a window, an output window that basically, quantifies this player's performance um, in numbers and, and we're getting we're getting to see everything he did compared to um, not only everyone else on the field but now the top players in his position in the world so we can see his performance in that game versus what what his profile could look like based on top players in the world and then you can also go back to all his other games the averages of his games to compare it to to top level players um, you know, we're, we're still doing expected passing accuracy. Uh, we're doing expected goal contribution, expected assist contribution, you know, looking at those numbers. And, and really, I think the next step for us is to, in my eyes, is to really um, calibrate the, the player profile in our system of play. And then be and then use that as a, as a, a scouting mechanism, and then match that up with okay, what are players doing? How are they matching up to to what we expect them to do in our system? Yeah, that, that seems like a challenging thing to me because when you're with the crew or whatever, you know, you know what you want to do as a team, and you know if you hit these different benchmarks, whether from a player level or team level. And for the national team, they're obviously in very different systems with all their clubs. So, what's the how do you kind of maneuver that challenge trying to translate? 
okay, he's doing this to the club and that doesn't, that's different than his role. How do you kind of put all those pieces together? That's the challenge. I think what you're doing is you're, you, sometimes you're imagining, you're saying, okay, what would, the, what would he look like? He's doing this role for his club. What would he look like in our system in this role? Mm-hmm. Um, because he's received, you know, because for example, because he's playing you know, a winger, a winger that tucks inside with his club and he's receiving between the lines a lot, you know, he could be an attacking midfielder when we play for, for uh, three, four, two, one. That, you know, that, that skill set matches up because that's what he's doing versus, you know, he's a wide winger that only stays wide, only goes 1v1. You know, it's, he's not going to be suited when we play 3-4-2-1 to be an attacking midfielder and kind of matching that, matching that, those profiles up. From a game prep standpoint, how do you generally integrate the, the data and the analytics into that process? Especially you have so few games to look at from both your perspective and the opponent perspective. Yeah. Lineups obviously change a lot. So how do you use uh, data in that process? So a couple of ways um, from technical data we're you know, we're able to look at lines of confrontation of opponents, get tendencies of their pressing. Um, are they a high pressing team? Are they a low, mid block, low block team? And what that allows you to do when you have a sample size of 10 games and they're always in mid block, you know, the chances that they're going to high press you are, are probably pretty, pretty low. Mm-hmm. And then it, what it gives you is the ability to focus less on that in training. So if you only have limited training days, and you know you have 10 phases of the game that you need to train, you can perhaps eliminate one phase of the game based on what the opponent does. If they never build up from goalkeeper, if, you're, if you put any pressure on them, you know, that's, another, that's another phase that you, can, you, know, you don't have to pay attention to that much. Um, so it's helpful there. You know, I think our, our biggest strides with data has been uh, on the physical side that I was mentioning to you before. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's the process of getting the information from the clubs acute chronic load, figuring out where the players are at physically, and then tailoring their training when they're in camp to make sure that A, they, they remain injury free, and then B, that they can perform at their highest level on game day. Mm. And that's an interesting process. You know, we, we collect a lot of data points from the players when they come into camp, they're doing screens, they're doing questionnaires, we're, you know, we're offloading training. We, we, we know an exact load that our training exercises are going to give us just by plugging in um, the different exercises. We've collected data over the years that we know exactly what type of load it's going to give us. So we can very accurately predict the, the training load on a player and how they're going to react to it based on what they've been doing. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. From a, what about in-game? What sort of uh, data information do you use in-game? You know, we see iPads on the sidelines and you know, you're talking, consulting yeah. with coaches and whatnot. So what do you use from an in-game yeah. perspective? So what, what we get in game, I mean, the videos are a great, a great tool in game. We have live video. It's, it's about, you know, 15 seconds behind the actual mm-hmm. game. Um, we can, we can separate it based on phases of play. So if we wanted to go back and, and see build up from goalkeeper, we can just press a button and see um, some build up from goalkeeper. We can auto almost tag clips as they're happening to, to review at halftime. We're also getting, you know, getting this raw numbers in the game also how successful are our buildups how you know how many chances are we creating expected goals we're, we're getting that relatively quickly in the game so you've talked consistently like beyond data just about establishing a system an identity a style for the team uh, how does the data factor into that identifying a style or, or maintaining a style through you know different games different opponents yeah, so what, what it does is, you know, when, when you look back on the 19 games or 20 games that we've been together as a group, 
you know, a lot of what we talked about, you can affirm with data. You know, we said we want to be a possession-based team. Our passing numbers are all up across the board. Our passing accuracy is up, up across the board. You know, we said we want to build out of the back. You know, our passing in the defensive zone is up, you know, considerably. Our chances created, our expected goals is way up. Um, you know, particularly when we play, you know, the interesting thing I found is that when we play weaker opponents, you know, we're creating a ton more chances than we have in, in the past. And I think that has to do with the structure. That has to do with the players understanding what we're doing and the, and the predictability of how we're going to create chances. And against weaker opponents, we can do that on a consistent basis. So those numbers are all up. Expected goals, chances created, all, all those numbers are, are way up. Um, even across the board, when you look at difficult opponents, you know, our, our expected goals is still pretty good. Um, our expected goals against is really good across the board. You know, we don't give up a lot of chances. We don't give up a lot of goals generally. You know, what I think it can do is it can reaffirm what you're doing. So when there is, you know, for example, that Mexico game that we lost three nothing and mm -hmm. and you know, it was it was painted as as the worst performance in the history of US soccer, you know? And then right. when you go back and you look at your data. Right, it wasn't that bad. No, exactly. And then you can start reaffirming yourself and saying, okay, what we wanted to work on, our objective in this particular game was this, right? And we achieved it. You know, mm -hmm. even though we lost this game, we achieved what we wanted to do in this game. And now what that is, is it's a growth point for the group. It helps the group um, grow and get better. And and then when you talk to the group about it, you know, when when they're all down and you have to reaffirm that, or, you know, reassure them that, OK, guys, it wasn't that bad. Here's why it wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. And then you start to, to dig into it. How does I mean, you're obviously very deep in, in the numbers and the data. How does knowing the data, knowing what's out there, how does that affect how you watch a game? So, I mean, if you sit down and watch, you know, whatever, Pulisic playing for Chelsea and you're just watching a game, what is kind of your thought process as it relates to numbers? Like, are those spinning through your head during a game? Is it something you come to afterwards? Just how, how do you watch a game relative to data? That's after that I take a look at that because what's happening in the game, when you're really analyzing a game um, as a coach, what you're looking for is system, structure, execution uh, of your role within that structure. And it takes a lot of it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of focus to be to be looking at that at all times. So you know you're looking you're looking at the overview of 22 players and you're seeing how they're interacting, and then you're you're focusing on on your player as well. So it, it's a lot to be yeah. to be analyzing. So then you go you know look at the numbers. What's a time that the data you kind of referenced this earlier? What's a time that the data and the eye test maybe conflicted? And what's how do you kind of go about? I don't know if resolving is the right word, but just kind of addressing that and thinking through that. If your eye says this was really good and the numbers suggest it was poor or vice versa. A lot of times, you know, we'll watch a player's performance and we'll be like, okay, he, you know, he, he had very little impact on the game. You know, this is a central midfielder and he had, you know, only 12 passes in, in one half of the play and six of them were with, with his head. And then we go back and look at the data and we confirm that. And it's a good feeling, you know, it's yeah. like, okay. The sure. central midfield, very, very little participation in the game. But what we've seen is sometimes the contribution of a player, you can pick up on the, the nuances of his participation with data. For example, you know, he had a very strong defensive performance intercepting passes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you go back and look at the numbers and you see, okay, he intercepted seven passes and that's, you know, 30% of the, his team's interceptions. You know, that can say, OK, you know, I, I didn't realize it was that strong of a, of a performance in that area of the, of the field. And then 
you've got to communicate this data to players. So you answered this on the Sounders Analytics Conference very simply when asked how you assess a player's learning style. You said, ask them. Yeah. And are you then kind of customizing reports for almost every player, whether it's from a video or, or hand them a piece of paper standpoint? Is, is that they're each getting unique stuff? You know, we, we it's funny because you try different things as a coach. You know, when, when I was in Columbus one time, you know, the guys had walked into the training ground and, and they have all had a printout of their performance from de- from a data standpoint. And, you mm-hmm. know, certain things were highlighted and they got that report. And, you know, I, I thought, you know, we wanted to try that. I'm, I, what I've realized now is it is customizable. You know, some players could care less about about the data. Some players are more concerned with watching their performance. Some players are more concerned with talking through their performance um, with a conversation. So I think that the most effective way that I found is to make it individualized and really um, understand what what the player wants wants to hear, how he receives information, and then present it to him. What are, what are a couple of keys to communicating things? If you have an important, maybe data-powered point to get across to a, a player or, or the team, how do you do that? without necessarily overwhelming them with numbers, if that's not kind of their their language, so to speak? Like everything we do, we want to make it the most simple way to look at it. You know, the idea, what comes to mind is very basic comparison numbers. We take two data, you know, two chunks of data, one here, one there, and just lay them against each other. Really simple though, you know, not a lot of numbers, maybe two pieces of data from the game versus this game versus the other game, and then show them that and, and really make it as simple as possible to comprehend and understand um, instead of flooding them, you know, with numbers. Yeah. So kind of a, Hey, you're really good in this game. And this number was this, yeah. and in this game we struggled and it was much worse. Or exactly. Something like Just that. keep it. Yeah. yeah. Keep it simple for them. How prevalent from your perspective is what U.S. soccer is doing data-wise? Just talking about national teams in the you know top couple tiers of the world. How prevalent is is what you do compared to other countries? You know, I don't I don't have a good enough understanding of what other countries are doing. Um, I really don't. You know, I, I could imagine that you know in sports science we're probably in the, on the forefront of what teams are doing. Um, you know, from a technical data standpoint, uh, you know, I think some of our structures are really good. You know, some of these output windows are really good, really strong, you know, how we're getting it in real time and how after the game, it's all the output windows are all populated by individuals. And, and that's that's really strong linked to video. Also, um, mm-hmm. you know, I still think, you know, because of the lack of, uh, of integration with tracking data, I still think we're you know, there's a whole frontier that we're, we're missing. And, and right. you know, I'm excited to get working on that. You said on this Sounders conference that you're more of a data guy than a visualization guy. Uh, for the people on your staff or players who are more visually oriented, what are uh, what are kind of the tips or what do you find useful from a visualization standpoint when presenting information to them? Yeah, so I mean, what I've noticed is the data guys they like to you know they like visual visualization. So mm-hmm. our, a lot of our data guys they like to put it into spider radar charts and you know and all these different bar charts and and so. That's already there for the players. You know, that's how it's presented. When I, I'd like to take it the other way and just and look at the raw numbers. I think that's, you know, how I process it and that's what works for me. But the data guys already understand that, that a lot of people don't like to look at the numbers. So they're already presenting it in a way that's user friendly. You, you mentioned the tracking data that you wish was just a little more uh, cohesive and it's continuing to evolve. Anything else you kind of wish you could track or wish you had a number for uh, when you're trying to analyze games? 
you know, one thing that we mentioned was how you translate data from different leagues. You know, mm -hmm. that could be helpful for us because, you know, people always like to make their, oh, you know, this guy is, is playing in the MLS. He's doing great in MLS, but what does that actually mean in the world, right? Or this guy's, you know, scoring a ton of goals in Holland. What does that mean in the world? And if we had these, this, this calculation that could translate those numbers to different leagues, I think that would be impactful. Just to look at the look at the data performance apples to apples from these guys. Making this transition from club to country, obviously it's very different. Just the the day to day, the the flow, the rhythm of everything. From a data standpoint, how how did that change for you going from the you know one or two games a week with Columbus uh, to you know a couple games every few months? So from kind of a data analysis standpoint, how does that change things? Sample size, right? Yeah. No sample size anymore. And, and you know, you, you're talking about in a year, you have a sample size, uh, basically in a quarter of a year. You know, you have all the preseason games, and and you know, the first quarter of the season, you're already 18 games in. Mm -hmm. And we just have such a small sample size. Our opponents have a small sample size. You know, you have to you have to get creative. You have to start tracking coaches and what the coaches have done throughout their career with different teams. Um, you know, it, it becomes challenging, the, the sample size. Yeah. You've been very open about process, not just analytics wise, but just in general in explaining things to media and such. And at, at Drew Media, we deal with a lot of teams in a lot of sports and some are very open about sharing things and some are very not. I'm just kind of curious, generally, what is your philosophy behind that? You know, why share a lot of things? I don't know that it's state secrets necessarily, but what's the philosophy behind uh, how open you are about process? I really believe in, in open communication, you know, with the staff, with the players, um, even with the media. And I think sometimes it's, it's help and sometimes it's hurt. You know, when you when you go out and you lay out a plan, exactly what you want to do and, you know, it's not perfect. Then, you know, then people say, well, hey, he said he was going to do this. They're not doing, you know, it's right. They lose perspective a little bit. So I think that's hurt. And I think it's helped sometimes, you know, sometimes people think it's refreshing that a coach is actually talking about tactics, talking mm -hmm. about what he's to do talking about how he's working with the team and like anything you know it, it it is it always is a process and and you know the first when i talked in the seattle conference the first time about leadership i think the important topic was as a coach what is winning to you and to me it's a combination of results and process mm -hmm. it's not just one because the process is what's going to help you in the long term and the results are what's going to help you in the short term and and can help players get belief, help, you know, the public get behind you. So it is, you know, it is a combination. It, it's not just a process. It is a combination of results as well. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, especially as you said, from a national team standpoint where you get, you know, two games every few months and exactly. as, as you know, of course, soccer can yeah. be a, a very fluky sport as well. Uh, yeah. you know, one kick, one bounce, whatever it might be. Exactly. So we wrap things up here with our playing favorites segment where we kind of rip through uh, a number of your favorites. So I'm going to start with what is your favorite number and why? My favorite number is number three. You know, that's the number I use most of my career. Um, and I don't know why it's a, it's a odd number, um, a nice shaped number, <laughs> but it looks good. It, yeah. It's a nice, it's a good looking number. Yeah. Who's your favorite athlete as you were a kid? Oh man. Yeah. I, it's funny because Michael Jordan's always like of our generation is always a top sure. one, but I also really love Magic Johnson. I loved mm -hmm. how he played the game. I loved how he, his size and, and the way he saw the game, his vision was mm -hmm. spectacular. So, you know, Magic Johnson was certainly one of my favorite athletes. Now that you're in Chicago with U.S. soccer, 
And I realize this may be a dangerous question to someone in Chicago. Do you have a favorite pizza place? You know, I haven't, I haven't experienced the, the, the taste test of Chicago pizza yet. <laughs> I'm looking forward to doing that. We have a place called Coal Fire right down the street that has really good pizza, but it's not Chicago style at all. Right. Um, but it, it's still good pizza. All right. For my four years there, I would push you toward Giordano's, and I would also say they're all good. So, Okay. So I heard of Pe- this Pequod's place, right? Pequod's uh-huh. or something? Yeah, I heard the name. Never went. And Illuminati's are, spo- yeah. are supposed to be. Yeah, Illuminati's is definitely one of the, the standards. And yeah. it's, it's good stuff, too. Okay. Do you have a favorite game that you've played in throughout your career? I mean, there's a couple obvious ones that, that stand out to from a public standpoint. Do you have, do you have a favorite? You know, not, not one. It's hard to say one favorite, right? It's like mm-hmm. asking, like, which kid do you love the best? Right. You know, it's a really difficult question. But a really fantastic game that we had was with 1860 when we played Bayern Munich in the in the, the German Cup quarterfinal. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because we both shared the state, same stadium. We're playing in the Allianz Arena, and um, it was an away game for us. But we still had probably 30,000 fans there ton of fans there it was sold out 70,000 people and it was a crazy game it was an extraordinary game and what happened at the end of the game was it was 0-0 the whole game and in the 118th minute of the game the ref calls a penalty kick on us Philip Lom got fouled two yards outside the penalty box it wasn't even close I mean it wasn't even it wasn't even close not even close. Where's the VAR when you need it, right? Exactly, right? Where's the VAR when you need it, right? So here's what happens. Ribery goes up to take the penalty kick, and he takes it and scores. And some of their one of their players infringed, so he had to take it again. Oh, wow. And the way he took it was the goalie got a hand on it, almost saved it, right? So I was looking at and I was the penalty taker for, for, the, um, you know, for the team. So I looked at that, and it was curious to me. So I went up to the goalie. And I said to him, I go, don't move. He's going to chip it down the middle. Because what I saw was he wasn't confident. Like he wasn't going to go back to that shot. He wasn't confident. And the goalie had a read on it. So now he's thinking the goalie's going to jump even more. Uh And he's going to chip it down the middle. So Ribery goes up to take it. Our goalie dives the same way. And Ribery chips it right down the middle. And we lost one nothing in the Uh. 100. Yeah, it was brutal, and I was like, oh, no. I mean, listen, the goalie has a decision. He's probably yeah. thinking, who's this guy to tell me what to do as a goalie? But it was something that I just – I felt it at that moment. Wow, that's a great story. One final question. So my favorite note from your bio is that your godfather is Carl Yastrzemski. Uh, do you yeah. have a favorite Carl Yastrzemski story that you can share? You know, I, I, t- I think I touched – there was an article, and I touched on this story, but it, it's mm-hmm. pretty funny where, you know – we were going to see Yaz in the off season and there was a, you know, we're in Florida. He's in Florida. We're, we're driving up to see him and spend the day with him. He has this whole thing planned. We're going to go deep sea fishing and, you know, it's this whole nice day we're going to spend with him. And we get in the, um, in the boat, we're getting out into the Atlantic ocean and we're there for about five minutes and me and my brother get completely seasick. <laughs> Turn green, started throwing up, and they have to turn the boat around and go back and drop us off. <laughs> you, you ruined Carl Yastrzemski's day. Yeah, and they went, they, they dropped us off, and they, they, they went back out fishing, so it didn't ruin his day. Okay, good. Yeah. Good, good. All right, good story to end with. Uh, U.S. National Team coach Greg Berhalter, thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks for having me.
Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Greg Berhalter for joining us on the show. Always great to learn how data is being used at the national team level. I like hearing how someone with a traditional playing background combines that with analytics to get the best out of both angles there. I'm joined now by True Media Senior Director Albert Larcata. Albert, what did you take away from the conversation with Greg? Yeah, lots of good stuff in there. Uh, could go a lot of different ways, but I think my favorite part was I forget the question you asked, but you guys eventually got into that uh, Mexico-U.S. game from last year mm-hmm. where uh, U.S. lost 3-0, I think, but expected goals was very even. It was like 1.2 to 1.0 or something like that. And mm-hmm. so the way Greg was talking about going back into the locker room and almost using data as a way to sort of boost back up his players. Like, you know, guys, this wasn't that bad. You know, they finished. They had three good chances, finished every one of them. We had some good chances, couldn't finish one. It's not the end of the world. These things happen. And actually having data to back that up and expected goals is the perfect one for that. It's just really cool. I mean, it's 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 really cool that he's actually doing that and, you know, y- using data in that way. Same thing is true in other sports, right? Like in the NFL, you, you know, could lose a game by a touchdown, but you had two tipped passes at the line that both turned into pick sixes. Otherwise, you dominated the game. Like it's a very clear message, like, the process was right. We did everything right. We had a couple unlucky tips or, you know, fumbles bounced the wrong way, what 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 have you. So those things happen in sports and using data to almost strip out the randomness and make sure that the process you had and the game plan you had was good and solid uh, is a pretty cool message for players. Boost back up their confidence, um, gets them back up after a uh, tough defeat. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's an important thing in all sports. I mean, you have a baseball, uh, you hear a manager say, hey, we, have to, we hit him really well, and they just ride at guys to get today, and the BABIP is extremely low, and it's just one of those things. So yeah, it's a good point, and it's good to hear someone at that high level using it, I think, because like you said, it's to prop you up when you have a tough game. The flip side, maybe you get lucky in a game. You don't just want to you know, rest on your laurels, so to speak, and not change anything, but it, you know, you get away with a win or a point but you realize, hey, we gave up too many of this kind of chance or we didn't do any of this that we wanted to do based on these numbers. It's a good reinforcement or of whatever point you're trying to make uh, if you use them right. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting and, and good to hear because I was sitting on the couch during that US-Mexico game like saying to my buddies, like, hey, US isn't getting killed here. It's not like Mexico is racking up the shots or, or dominated in all aspects. They just executed really well on those important couple of, of shots that mattered the most. The thing that kind of stood out to me aside, aside from the fact that his godfather is Carl Yastrzemski, which I think is just a phenomenal random cross-sport connection. <laughs> yeah. I've always been fascinated by the job of a national team coach, especially in the U.S. I mean, you have to monitor what, a, a dozen plus countries, 20 leagues or something to choose your best 20 some odd players. And then you have to fit all these pieces together when you have a week, every month or two or three. Uh, and so as he was talking about, in some ways that's easier now because it's so much easier to get data, whether it's, he talked about getting sports science data straight from the club. Uh, there's event data through ProVision or whatever. The flip side though, you have to figure out what all that means. And that's an incredible challenge because I think if all your players on your national team played in the same domestic league, that's obviously much easier. But now, you know, the U S has guys in however many different leagues. So what is scoring, you know, Josie Altidore scored 30 goals in the Dutch league. What does that mean? Then he went to England and scored two goals. What does that mean? So, you know, is it better to struggle in the Premier League like, uh, you know, what Brad Guzan did with Aston Villa and Middlesbrough or excel in this wide open Liga MX? So figuring out what the data from different leagues means is a really tough challenge. And it also requires the uh, 
eye test factor. You got to be able to see, as he said, you know, watch this guy in this role with the club and see if it fits into the philosophies you have as a national team. So there's so much you have to figure out and so little time you actually have all the players that I don't envy them. Uh, and it's also just about as challenging a puzzle to put together as a coach as you could possibly have. Right, right. And not not just the league factors, even the position factors within the league, yeah. right? Like you could have a guy playing right wing at some team in a, you know, 4-3-3, and then all of a sudden you want him to play center forward in the in the formation that you want to play. How do you translate that? So it's, uh, yeah, that's true. It, it's an unenviable job trying to translate uh, both league factors and uh, position factors, but that's the job. Yep, that's the job. Weston McKinney played like eight different positions for Schalke this year, and you got to figure out how to put him right in a completely different system as well. So. Yeah, Josh Sargent being a good uh, pertinent yeah. example these days, struggling a right. little in the Bundesliga. How much of that is him? How much of that is, you know, the team? All yep. of that. Yeah, it's hard to say. And some even someone like Gio Reyna looks great with Dortmund. Is that because he came up through the system? Well, now the U.S. is going to have to figure out how do you plug him into uh, the Berhalter system, so to speak, and how do you get the most out of him in that form? So these are good problems to have. Uh, but yeah, like you said, that's the job. All right, that'll wrap things up for this episode of Expected Value. Thanks again to Greg Berhalter for taking the time to talk to us. Our next show will be a follow-up piece of sorts with Tyler Heaps, U.S. Soccer's Director of Sporting Analytics. He works with Greg and the rest of U.S. Soccer. We'll chat about Tyler's role with Greg, with both national teams. He spent last summer in France with the World Cup winning U.S. women. For more soccer talk, check out our show from a couple weeks back with Stats Perform's Ben McCreel, who previously worked for several English clubs, now on the data side with Opta and Stats Perform, and plenty of other soccer episodes in the archives as well, from Atlanta United's Lucy Rushton to ESPN's Taylor Twelman. While you're there, please rate and review the show. That always helps us build an audience. Feel free to share the podcast across social media as well. On behalf of everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Mm-hmm.